2 Corinthians chapter 6, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, let's begin today, if we may, in verse 1. We then, as workers together with him, beseech you also that you receive not the grace of God in vain, the grace of God in vain, we are saved by the grace of God. And here the Apostle Paul is writing to the Corinthians, and he's got probably a couple of things in mind. Number one, it may be possible that some of his audience are not saved. Number two, it could be possible that some of his audience have fell perhaps to the camp or have fallen to the camp of the legalists, like those in Galatia, or more likely have fallen over or fallen to the camp of liberalism. You can be a legalist, you can be a liberal, and both are lethal to one's liberty in the Lord. We then, as workers together with him concerning Jesus Christ, beseech you also that you receive not the grace of God in vain. If you spend any amount of time speaking to Calvinists or non-Calvinists, within five minutes you will discover that there is quite a divide. Calvinists can be very critical of non-Calvinists, and even non-Calvinists can be very critical of Calvinists, and both will accuse the other of cheap grace. But grace has always been grace, simply meaning this, God's righteousness at Christ's expense. So it is possible that, in Paul's mind, he is aware that the issue is surrounding legalism or liberalism. And like I say, both are lethal, absolutely lethal, to one's liberty in the Lord. But this goes back to 5.20, we pray you in Christ's stead. And Paul would reiterate his credentials time after time, because there were people that were accusing him of being nefarious. There were people that were accusing him of not being a legitimate apostle, that his credentials weren't the real thing, that somehow the mother church in Jerusalem didn't commission him, didn't uh, appoint him, didn't uh, ordain him to go out and do what he would do. And that is very true. He wasn't ordained. He wasn't commissioned. He wasn't chosen by the mother church. He was chosen directly by the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, if you go to the Gospel of John, like chapter 20, when the Lord appears to the apostles in the upper room, somebody's missing. And that somebody is Thomas, a fascinating piece of scripture. Thomas misses out on a blessing and the Lord would breathe on the apostles. But somebody's missing. Go to the book of Acts. The apostle Paul is heading off to Damascus, modern day Syria. He wants to arrest Christians. He wants to torture, interrogate and be responsible indirectly for their deaths. And of course, you know what happens. Almighty God steps in, knocks him off his horse and he's blind physically for three days. But here Paul is speaking to the Corinthians and he wants to make it clear to them, if not to himself, that by all means, at whatever cost, you mustn't receive the grace of God in vain. Now for today, we could say a couple of things. We could say, number one, that you can't work your way into heaven. Number two, you can't lose your salvation. Grace is grace. And yet, if such was to be uh, correctly understood and taught in churches all over the world, they would close. In fact, during my updated article on Calvinism, I was looking at Martin Luther. And Luther knew very clearly and very correctly that infant baptism was unscriptural. But at the same time, he knew that if he preached such a message on a regular basis, parents would stop going to church. They wouldn't bring their children to church. And he would lose two or three families, or maybe a dozen families. And you say, why would that be a problem for him? Well, because they tithe. They put money into the plates. And this is the problem with lots of churches. They know what the scripture teaches, but if they taught it, like verse by verse, they would risk losing people. Let's keep reading on verse two. For he saith, I've heard thee in a time accepted and in the day of salvation have I succored thee. Behold, now is accepted time. Behold, now is a day of salvation. Go to Isaiah 49. Isaiah will record at least seven conversations between God the Father and God the Son up in the third heaven. And here Isaiah writing around 700 BC on the earth is privileged to pick up one part of this incredible conversation. And like I say, if you read Isaiah carefully, there are at least seven accounts of God the Father speaking to God the Son at some stage in time. And Isaiah is able to hear it and record it. 
Isaiah, uh, Isaiah 49. Isaiah 49. Look at verse 8, if you will. Thus saith the Lord, in an acceptable time have I heard thee, and in a day of salvation have I helped thee, and I will preserve thee, and give thee for covenant to the people, to establish the earth, to cause to inherit the desolate heritages, that thou mayest say to the prisoners, Go forth, to them that are in darkness, show yourselves. They shall feed in their ways, and their pastures shall be in all high places. Look at verse 6. And he said, It is a light thing that thou shouldest be my servant, to raise up the tribes of Jacob, and to restore the preserved of Israel. I will also give thee for light to the Gentiles, that thou mayest be my salvation unto the end of the earth. God the Father speaking to God the Son up in the third heaven, and you can't miss it. And in verse 8 one more time, Thus saith the Lord, in an acceptable time have I heard thee. It could be the incarnation. It could be when Christ was on the cross. And in a day of salvation have I helped thee. You've got much going on here. You've got the atonement. You've got God the Father anointing. You've got the Holy Ghost carrying Christ. And I will preserve thee and give thee for a covenant of the people. In the context, Israel, to establish the earth. Also feeding into the new earth for the Jews. To cause to inherit the desolate heritages. That thou mayest say to the prisoners, those that were in the ground awaiting the Messiah. Go forth to them that are in darkness. Show yourselves. Also pictured back in the Gospels. He would come as a light to the Gentiles. They shall feed in their ways and their pastures shall be in all high places. Go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. So the Apostle Paul will quote the Old Testament many times. In fact, I've worked out that 2 Corinthians is quite possibly the number one epistle when it comes to the Apostle Paul quoting the Old Testament. For he saith 6.2, I've heard thee in a time accepted, and in the day of salvation have I succored thee. Behold now is accepted time, behold now. It's a day of salvation. You've got two things. Number one, the Apostle Paul is quoting the Old Testament, and he was at liberty to do so, and he would quote it sometimes in part, sometimes in its entirety, and he would do so because he too was writing under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost. And like I just said, part of Isaiah uh, 49 concerns God the Father speaking to God the Son. And from verse 6 in Isaiah 49, it is very clearly in reference to the church, the Gentiles, you will preserve the tribes of Jacob like the Jews, and you will also be a light to the Gentiles. That's you and I, the church. But Paul, when he quotes it, comes from a slightly different angle. I've heard thee in a time accepted, and in the day of salvation have I succored thee. Old English for helped you. Behold, now is accepted time. Behold, now is a day of salvation. And we like to use this first to Make it very clear that you need to be saved right now. Don't put off tomorrow what you can do today. You are not guaranteed tomorrow. Many people think that their lives await them only to realize that time is very precious. In fact, this past week, there was a train crash in Barcelona. Several injured. I don't know if there were any fatalities. And yet that train station in Barcelona is a very busy train station. It uh, happened around the time of the rush hour. And I've been to that train station and I would imagine that most of those Spaniards were going to work or coming back from work. And they were probably enjoying themselves on their phones, texting their friends, planning their evening out, meals, uh, time with friends and, and family and associates. And probably the last thing in their minds were that they would be part of an awful train crash. And we try and stress the importance to people on the streets that now is accepted time. Now is a day of salvation. But I am fascinated with Isaiah's description, his account of a conversation concerning Jesus Christ, concerning God the Father, preserving God the Son. It speaks about uh, the Lord knowing that he was sent from the Lord, John chapter 17. And when Isaiah speaks about God the Father speaking to God the Son, you've got a lot more going on. And when Paul quotes Isaiah 49, he is very much aware that he is picking up a conversation, a sacred conversation, but it's way beyond just the Father speaking to the Son. It also concerns our salvation. Look at verse 3 from Second Corinthians chapter 6. 
giving no offence in anything, that the ministry be not blamed, but in all things approving ourselves as a minister of God, in much patience, in afflictions, in necessities, in distresses, in stripes, in imprisonments, in torments, in labours, in watchings, in fastings, by pureness, by knowledge, by long-suffering, by kindness, by the Holy Ghost, by love unfeigned, by the word of truth, by the power of God, by the armour of righteousness on the right hand and on the left, by honour and dishonour, and by evil report and good report, as deceivers and yet true, as unknown and yet well known, as dying and behold we live, as chastened and not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing and yet possessing all things. So I sat down yesterday and I read chapter 6, as I always do in preparation of recording it, and I counted 34 attributes to Paul's ministry. And I would suggest this, that for most brothers around the world, most teaching brothers around the world, most brothers that have any kind of teaching ministry, I wouldn't uh, imagine there are many that would want to adopt just seven of these attributes. Verse 3, one more time. Giving no offence in anything, that the ministry be not blamed. Contrast that to the Judaizers. Contrast that to those that were going around trying to undermine the Apostle Paul. For today, we think of the Jesuits. For today, we think of those that are part of the Alexandria cult. For today, we think of those that teach universalism. In fact, at the latter part of uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, it mentions that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them. And if you speak to a universalist, they will say that this text proves that the entire world will be saved and nobody will go to hell. Of course, that is heresy. Just because Almighty God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself and hasn't yet, and that's the word, hasn't yet imputed their trespasses unto them doesn't mean that they will escape hell. It simply means that he's made it possible for the entire world to be redeemed, to be saved. And that's why Paul would go on to say, we beseech you in Christ's stead, verse 20, be ye reconciled, that's the word, be ye reconciled to God. In other words, get saved, which feeds back into verse 1, that you don't receive the grace of God in vain. Don't cheapen the grace of God. And also don't try and add to the grace of God. It's like if I gave you a lovely piano, say a baby grand or a Steinway or a nice Yamaha electric piano, a wonderful piano. And you sat down and you played it and you knew within five seconds that it was something remarkable. It was priceless. It was perfect. And then all of a sudden you started to polish the piano. You started to mess around with the keys you started to retune this piano, which didn't need to be retuned, didn't need to be polished, didn't need anything. It's brand new. Within five minutes, you've ruined a beautiful piano. And that's what people do with, it, with their salvation. They try and add to the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they can become either legalistic or they can become liberal. And like I say, both are lethal when it comes to one's liberty in the Lord. But the key for verse 3 is to be transparent, is to be perfect, not in the sense of uh, sinless, and if you can, not to cause somebody to stumble. It's so very difficult not to cause somebody to stumble. Somebody may have come to the Lord from a particular background. Let's say they were addicted to sport, and they've come to the Lord, and they've seen somebody in their church or somebody that they know who plays sport every Sunday afternoon. Or play sports every Saturday morning. It could be football. It could be swimming. It could be rugby. Now for that person. They can take it or leave it. But for the person who's come to faith in the Lord. And was addicted to sports. I mean into it in a big way. It can become a stumbling block. Within five seconds. For such a person. And if that is brought to the attention. Of this brother. This imaginary brother. In a, I'm just using a scenario. Not a real account, but in theory, if this was brought to such a party's attention, if he had any sensitivity, he would abandon doing his sport in public. That's what it comes down to. And yet, 
It's difficult. Giving no offence in anything. Edith said and done. That the ministry be not blamed. But in all things approving ourselves as the ministers of God. Similar to you are my witnesses saith the Lord. In much patience. Now you've either got patience or you haven't. I'm not sure Paul was naturally a patient person. We know that he was on route to Damascus with arrest warrants. And he was very keen to track down, interrogate and like I say put Christians to death. He was terrified that Christianity would spread and it would kill off Judaism, which it actually did. It did kill off Judaism. At the end of the first century, the Jews were far and few between. They had a meltdown, and they had a council called the Council of uh, Jaffa, which partly uh, decided to affirm the Old Testament canon to be 39 books. But at the same time, they also went into apostasy. And in some ways, the church is a mystery. In some ways, the church is a spiritual form of Israel. Patience, afflictions, necessities, distresses. If you think of Paul, you think of perhaps somebody like uh, Bunyan. Or if you think of Paul, you think of someone like uh, General Gordon. Or if you think of Paul, you think of someone like uh, William Booth. And all those men took a stand and they would be buffeted. They would suffer. They would really experience distress. It says how Christ was a man... Uh, acquainted with grief he was a man despised if you saw jesus christ in the first century you probably wouldn't have thought he was a very happy person to be around it says only once in the gospels that he rejoiced just once it says he was grieved it says he was angry christ was very much an emotional man a very emotional person and here paul speaks about patience afflictions necessities distresses stripes You think of Paul being whipped, you think of Paul being starved, you think of Paul being humiliated, and ask yourself this, could you do what Paul did? Would you want to do what Paul did? Most men in Britain, most Christian men, most full-time men in the UK, most full-time Christian men in the UK, whether Catholic, Protestant, Evangelical, or what have you, rub along quite nicely with the world. They're not going around getting whipped beaten i can't think of any priest pastor or vicar that has ever really experienced a fraction of what the apostle paul would imprisonments how about being detained if you think of some of the infamous people like mandela gandhi for example Macarius, and others all were detained they all had a belief in trying to make this a better world all died unsaved and yet they gave up many years for their cause. I think Mandela holds a record. 26 years. What was it all for? If you go to South Africa today. It's a third world country. South Africa has been able to keep Zimbabwe afloat to their shame. Much like China has been able to keep North Korea afloat to her shame. And yet had South Africa wanted to. They could have collapsed Zimbabwe. They could have sent uh, Mugabe, the leader of Zimbabwe, to The Hague. China could do the same with uh, North Korea concerning their leader, Kim Il-sung. But of course, it doesn't happen. The world loves their own. But my point is this. You've got unsaved men being detained. Bobby Sands, IRA, for a long period of time. And yet, it's all in vain because such people are unsaved. Fast forward to the 21st century. Where are the heroes today? Where are the real men of God today? Why aren't more of us, and I include myself, Why more of us prepared to do jail time for the Lord? To take a stand for the Lord? Talmud's labours, watchings. Paul would watch, Paul would watch, number one, over his flock. Number two, he would watch for the Lord's return. He was told to do so back in the Gospel of Mark. I think it's chapter 14. To watch. We are to watch for the rapture. We are to watch for the Lord's return. And he would watch over his flock. He would watch over their welfare. And anybody who is saved, anybody who has any kind of teaching ministry, cares about those that he is working alongside. He takes time to pray for such people. How about fastings? Fastings isn't uh, an easy thing to do. To fast means you stop eating. It means you stop drinking. You may do it once a day. You may skip a meal once a day and use that time for prayer. 
to intercede for worship. You may fast once a day every week. And yet some people like to overplay fasting. There was one guy who I heard years ago speak about his fasting. And he would fast, I think, three times a week. And he fell ill. And his doctor said to him, you need to stop fasting. You are hindering yourself. You are harming yourself. And this man took his doctor's notice and he stopped fasting. If you want to fast, fast. But don't broadcast it. Matthew 6 speaks about the Pharisees that would fast in public and they would give the appearance of being holy now, super duper. And Jesus says they've had their reward. So if you want to fast, do so, but don't broadcast it. And also don't do it uh, to the extent of making yourself sick. Pureness, knowledge, long-suffering, kindness, love unfeigned. That's all pretty clear. Knowledge, knowledge of the Saviour, knowledge of the Scripture, pureness, separation, consecration, by the word of truth, verse 7, being the Scripture, power of God, armour of righteousness on the right hand and on the left, imputation, but also practical righteousness, like work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is he that worketh in you. And that simply is going back, that will feed back into what Peter would say, to make your calling and election sure, to be mindful that you know you are saved, which can also feed back into not receiving the grace of God in vain. Eight, honour, dishonour, evil report, good report. Paul was slandered, like I say, they thought, the Judaizers, that he was mad, that he had this authority which he had given himself, that he wasn't really an apostle, that he was going around doing his own thing off his own back, and he was, only, you know, he was only in it for the money, but that, of course, wasn't true. And that feeds into evil report, good report, honour, dishonour, deceivers, and yet true. He wasn't a deceiver. He was the real thing. But he was very much mindful that those around him were trying to undermine him. These Judaizers, they would hate the idea that you are saved by your faith in Christ alone. In fact, like I say, as I'm going through my Calvin article, which... I wrote many years ago, I'm shocked to rediscover quotes from people like Arthur Pink, who said that you're not saved by faith in Christ alone. And somebody else said that John 3.16 is the most misunderstood scripture in the entire Bible. Well, I'll say this, it's probably the clearest scripture in the entire Bible. And these wolves in sheep's clothing come along, attack justification by faith, and add works into the equation. And they too are the types of people that Paul would have come up against. Unknown and yet well-known, verse 9. He was known to the Corinthians. He was known to the Galatians, to the Ephesians. And behold, we live as chastened and not killed. Scripture says that the Lord chastens those that are his. And if he doesn't chasten you, then perhaps you are a bastard, meaning you're not saved. Illegitimate. As sorrowful, verse 10 yet always rejoicing. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say rejoice. Yet making many rich, not physically but spiritually, as having nothing and yet possessing all things. Paul the Apostle would live hand to mouth. He was a tent maker by trade. And as he got older in years, his eyesight left him. He would be arrested many times. And it's quite possible that towards the end of his life, he was supported by those that he got saved with some kind of gift or two. It says over in Acts, uh, Acts 28 that he lived in his hired home for two years. And I would imagine that the local community in Rome paid his rent for two years. I mean, this man gave them the gospel. This man lived an example which I don't think has been matched. I don't think there are any brothers alive today in Britain, America or Canada that could match up to what we just looked at this morning when it comes to Paul's integrity, his character, his example. I mean, if you read about Jesus Christ, he sets a bar very, very high. In fact, it's impossible really to follow in the steps of the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet Paul comes along and he's very near. He's very near to walking in the steps of the Savior, but not quite because Paul had a sin problem like you and I. Paul knew that he was sinful but the whole context of 2 Corinthians chapter 6 is, number one, don't receive the gospel of the grace of God in vain, feeding into liberalism, legalism. Number two, now is the day of salvation. Now 
is the accepted time. In other words, get saved now. Don't put off your salvation. You may not be guaranteed tomorrow. And yet most people are very much caught up in the here and now. Most people want to fix the here and now. In fact, just this morning, I was watching a clip online of a well-known English character on the rights of politics, shall we say, unsaved. And he's going around the UK trying to fix up this broken country. He's trying to stand against Islam. He's trying to stand against Sharia law. And I'm all for that. But unfortunately, he's not saved. And you've got this unsaved man taking on this wicked ideology, very much up against it, receiving death threats. And yet he's not saved. And you think to yourself, how tragic. He should be saved, but he's not. Those that he's speaking to are not saved. And I've said this over the years that if he was to sit down with these Islamists, these Muslims, these Mohammedans, and speak about the eternal issues, he couldn't offer them anything. And they'd be absolutely in their right to say to him, so what can you offer us in place of our religion? He can't offer them anything. He's an unsaved man. And he's like many people in this country, trying to do something and yet is unable to because he's not saved. He doesn't realize this is a spiritual war. Leave it to those of us which are saved. Leave it to us to try and reach these people through the internet, through tracts, through the gospel. That's what the Muslims need. They need Jesus Christ. They need the scriptures. They need to be reconciled to God because Jesus Christ died for their sins as well. Not to mention this character that I'm speaking about, well-intended, I'm sure, but unsaved. And he too needs to be saved so we speak about ministry we speak about suffering we speak about being stigmatized we speak about being frozen out it's a very lonely walk if you are a christian if you are a brother with any kind of a ministry you walk a very lonely walk and most people that you come into contact with could be saved may well be saved but they won't walk five yards with you to the nearest bus stop i mean i can't Recall how many conversations I've had over the years with people in the streets of Britain that say they are saved, and yet I say to them, uh, well, can you take a tract and pass it out to someone? Or could you leave some of my tracts on the bus or on the train? And they look at you like it's something they've never heard of before. They have no desire to go the extra mile. They may go to a church, but they don't want to go the extra mile. So this will feed into separation, which we'll pick up next Sunday. But Paul gave you 34 characteristics, 34 attributes to his ministry. And I don't suppose the Judaizers that were gossiping about him, attacking him, could claim just three or four of these attributes for themselves. They were very comfortable, very cosy, like most in full-time ministry today. They weren't street preachers. In fact, I sat down yesterday to look at a commentary on 2 Corinthians. Very interesting, but a little too academic for me. I couldn't find any reference to this particular writer, street preaching, contending for the faith, once delivered unto the saints. I couldn't find anything about that. It was very academic, going to the Greek text, speaking about this church or that church. And I thought, where do I come into this? I can't relate to someone like him. He can't relate to someone like me. But when I look at Paul, the street preacher, a soul winner, a man who gave up everything to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, a man who wrote half for the New Testament, a man who believed in the entire Bible, I find someone I can relate to, and I like to think he could relate to me as well. So 34 attributes concerning Paul's ministry, and yet you try and find anyone today who wants to be associated with any of these attributes. A couple of old English words, tumult, meaning confusion or disorder, unfeigned, meaning genuine, sincere, recompense, meaning to compensate, pay or reward for effort or work. And these old words are lost on most uh, people today, and that's why you have so many modern Bibles put out by liberals, apostates, and if you spend just five minutes looking through an NIV or an ESV or an RSV, you will find thousands of words missing, entire verses missing. And I think it's also fair to say that some of those men that are responsible for the new Bibles are quite likely to be in the same camp as those that were attacking Paul back in the day. So I will close it there. This will be at least a two to three parter. Uh, Next week we'll pick it up from uh, chapter 6, verse 11. Okay, so this will be uh, broadcast number 14, which means this is week number 14. And as of last Sunday, we have accumulated eight hours of material. 
And I would guess that we've probably got another 14 weeks to go to conclude the second epistle to the Corinthians. No more than six months. But so far, like I say, eight hours, 14 weeks. And therefore, this will be broadcast number 14. So last week we finished at verse 10 from 2 Corinthians chapter 6. But go back to verse 2. I want to inspect this verse a little more closely. For he saith, I have heard thee in a time accepted, and in the day of salvation have I succored thee. Behold, now is accepted time. Behold, now is a day of salvation. That first section from verse 2 comes from Isaiah 49 verse 8. But you've got a colon. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is a day of salvation. And it could be one of two things. Number one, it could be that the Apostle Paul is offering New Testament revelation. Or number two, he may have Isaiah 55 in mind. And turn to Isaiah 55. It's my belief that 2 Corinthians quite possibly is the number one Pauline epistle when it comes to his citation of Old Testament passages. Isaiah 55. Isaiah 55. Look, if you will, at verse 6. Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him return unto the Lord and he will have mercy upon him and to our God. For he will abundantly pardon. So two things. Number one, if Paul has got this in mind, okay, all very well. But if he hasn't got it in mind, then like I say, he is giving you, he's giving you New Testament revelation. Six again, seek ye the Lord while he may be found. That's pretty timeless. Call ye upon him while he is near. Again, that could be for the Old Testament. That could be for the New Testament. Let the wicked forsake his way. And that's where the Lordship Salvation Crew like to come in. And they will say that you need to repent of all of your sins in order to be saved, which sounds all very well and dandy. But how do you apply that practically? I mean, how do you know if you have forsaken all of your ways, all of your wicked ways? And the unrighteous man, his thoughts. Proverbs 23, 7 says, As a man thinks in his heart, so he is. Which means quite simply this, that whatever you think, you are. And that feeds back into the New Testament. Like if you are angry without a cause, you are guilty of hellfire. If you hate your brother or sister, you are, present tense, a murderer. And yet such statements are rarely, if ever, preached. Unrighteous man, his thoughts. Unrighteous woman, her thoughts and let him return unto the Lord. So if it's for today, which the Lordship Salvation crew would have us believe, then ask yourself this. Did you belong to the Lord before you were saved? Of course not. Did you know the Lord before you were saved? Of course not. Paul says that before you were saved, you were in the world alone without any hope. The covenants were not for you. They were for the children of Israel. And he will have mercy upon him. That's pretty timeless. And to our God. Isaiah was a Jew, writing to the Jews. So it's kind of tricky, it's kind of uh, difficult, shall we say, to read this piece of scripture and apply it doctrinally to an unsaved man or woman living in the church age. For he will abundantly pardon, which is timeless. So I see the Lord, verse 6, being Jehovah. I see the Lord, verse 7, being Yahweh. I see our God, latter part of verse 7, and I am struck at the thought that, yes, on the one hand, this has some application to an unsaved person living today in the church age. But strictly speaking, Isaiah is aiming this at a backward Jew, a backsliding Jew, a wayward Jew who needs to come back to Jehovah. Because one more time, before you were saved, if you are saved, you were not affiliated to the Lord in any way, shape or form. He didn't know you. He didn't know him. You were an enemy of the Lord through your wicked works and according to the Lord Jesus Christ you were of your father the devil so it's tricky it is tricky to quote Isaiah 55 and apply it doctrinally to anyone living today 2nd Corinthians 6 go back to 2nd Corinthians chapter 6 one more time from verse 2 for he saith I've heard thee in a time accepted context Isaiah 49 Jesus Christ and in the day of salvation have I succored thee now could feed back into the Lord's ministry on the earth everything that he said and did was done through the commission of the holy spirit and he did so to honor his father but paul is taking this passage and aiming it at those of us which are not yet saved and here's the uh, part one more time that we are looking at this morning behold now 
is except a time. Behold, now is a day of salvation. Pretty self-explanatory. You get one life, and if you miss it, if you're not saved, you pass up the gospel, the grace of God, off to hell you go. So I just wanted to go back to that verse and try and uh, spend a few moments looking at it, because like I say, the Lordship Salvation crew like to quote Isaiah 55 and put it on somebody who's not yet saved, but that is problematic, and you can see why. I'm not against uh, calling on sinners to repent, of course not. Jesus Christ from uh, Matthew chapter 4 would say repent. That was the first word he said publicly, repent. And of course we know what that word means. But when you get into telling an unsaved person to forsake his wicked ways, I mean yes that can be part of the gospel, but how do you measure that? How do you know if you have forsaken all of your wicked ways? And you see the problem that people get into when they use such a text. Look at verse 11 please from 2 Corinthians chapter 6. O ye Corinthians... Our mouth is open unto you. Our heart is enlarged. Paul was a personification of love. He really did love you. And he would go the extra mile for you. If you read Matthew 5, 6, 7 and 8. The Lord Jesus Christ speaks about the conditions for the kingdom. And most premillennial teachers believe that Matthew 5, 6, 7 and 8. Is in reference to the millennial kingdom. I mean you try and live. For example uh, the teachings from Matthew 5. You try and turn the other cheek. The next time somebody uh, smacks you on the face or you try and uh, give clothing to somebody that you don't know or you try and refrain from uh, giving someone a tongue lashing. Going back to if you are angry without a cause, you are guilty of hellfire. Very, very difficult. And you get into other parts of the uh, Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes. But Paul came very near. Paul came very near to living it like we say O ye Corinthians, our mouth is open unto you. From Acts chapter 20, Paul made it very clear that he had preached the entire counsel of God to the Ephesians. And I'm pretty sure that if he could say that to the Ephesians, he could say that to the Corinthians. So his mouth was very much open in reference, first of all, to preaching the gospel. He would say from 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that he hadn't been sent to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And that feeds into Romans, how faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Our heart is enlarged. Seven, uh, seven, two and three. Help us to interpret this. Chapter seven, verse two. Receive us. We have wronged no man. We have corrupted no man. We have defrauded no man. Look at verse three. I speak not this to condemn you. For I have said before that ye are in a hearts to die and live with you. So that kind of interprets verse 11 from 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Look at verse 12 from 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Ye are not straightened in us, but ye are straightened in your own bowels. And that word bowels or bowel simply means anything inside a person. You may have heard someone say, I yearn for you in my bowels. I yearn for him in my bowels. I yearn for this. I yearn for that in my bowels. Ye are not straightened in us. But ye are straightened in your own bowels. Bit of sarcasm. And what do people say? The truth hurts. Just yesterday we were doing some street work. And a couple walked past us. And the guy turned to the girl. And he said uh, to her how the truth always hurts. And he said it twice. And I wasn't aware. Or I couldn't be sure what the conversation was concerning. But that split second. Two people walking past me. And he said the truth. The truth hurts. And here... Paul is speaking to the Corinthians, a carnal bunch of Christians. And yes, Christians can be carnal. And he's saying this, that you're not straightened in us, but you are straightened in your own bowels. You're pretty much into yourselves. You think the whole world revolves around you. And this is very much a problem for today. Most Christians think that the world revolves around them or their church or their little circle. And yet you are told to deny yourself. You were told to pick up your cross each and every day. You were told that if you tried to save your life, you would lose it. You were told that if you loved your family more than a saviour, you weren't worthy of him. Look at verse 13. Now for recompense in the same, I speak as unto my children, be ye also enlarged. Yes, Paul was their spiritual father, but he wasn't called Father Paul. And on top of that, he wasn't their only spiritual father. Every apostle would be a local evangelist. 
Uh, I won't use the term pastor because, you know, if you think of a pastor today, you think of a man in a pulpit who does it full time. But in the first century, an apostle was an evangelist. An apostle was somebody who went out by faith. An apostle was somebody who could heal people, like supernaturally. And an apostle was somebody who would preach the gospel on the street if necessary. And most pastors today don't do street work. Most pastors today stay in their own little churches. And most pastors today wouldn't even think of approaching someone and calling on him or her to repent, to forsake their wicked ways. And of course, you can do that one more time. You can tell someone if they're unsaved that they need to forsake their wickedness. But don't forget that they are saved by believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. Let the Holy Spirit do the convicting in the hearts of an unsaved person. But unfortunately, the Lordship Salvation crew put the, on many occasions, the uh, carts before the horse and they expect a person to clean up their lives in order to then be saved, which, of course, is impossible. So 11, 12, 13 are speaking about the Corinthians being carnal, needing to cast off the old man, put on the new man, renew their minds each and every day and to be aware of the bigger picture, if you will. Look at verse 14, please. Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion hath light with darkness? Unbelievers. So before you are saved, if you are saved, number one, you are unclean. Number two, you are unholy. Number three, you are unregenerate. And number four, you are unsaved. Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. This feeds into separation which feeds into segregation. And yes, the Saviour is very interested in his church separating from unsaved people in a spiritual sense, not in the sense of a race. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion hath light with darkness? Light means life. Darkness means death. Righteous, imputation. Unrighteous, the opposite of course. 15. And what concord hath Christ with Belial? Or what part hath he that believeth with infidel? Concord. Concordant. You think of the 1930s, for example. You think of the Catholic Church. You think of Pope Pius XII. You think of uh, Martini, who would become Pope Paul VI. And you think of other VIPs around that infamous table, von Papen being one of them. And you've got a group of Men in a Catholic church, the highest of the high, signing a concordance, signing a treaty, signing a contract with the Nazis. And that contract, that concordance was never broken. And that has gone very much unnoticed. You won't hear of many modern day historians speaking about such a concordance. I've been a student of history for 25 years and I've watched many documentaries over the years, and I've read many books over the years, and to the best of my knowledge, I can't think of any well-known historian that has written or has reported via television, radio, or in print such a concordant being signed by the Catholic Church, this so-called infallible church. And of course, the concordant was signed by, as I say, the Catholics with the Nazis and the Men that ran, that ran the Nazis during World War II were all Roman Catholic. What would Franco say when uh, Hitler was dead and buried? He would say that a faithful son of the church has passed away. Franco was a Catholic. And we know from uh, records, history, that uh, Pope Pius XII gave Hitler a requiem mass. And yet you won't find that spoken of by historians. They will spend a lot of time speaking about the Holocaust, which is all very well. And they will spend a lot of time speaking about... Uh, Germany invading Poland, Czechoslovakia, uh, Denmark, France, and the Battle of Britain. I mean, they will just spend so much time looking at the world, uh, looking at World War II in great detail. Many movies have been made about World War II, and yet not one, not one, about the concordance signed between the Catholic Church and the Nazis. And you would have said to yourself, what could they possibly have in common? Well, that's the sort of theme from verse 15. And what concord? Hath Christ with Belial. Belial, or Belial, pronounce it as you will, is an old description for Satan, like Beelzebub, like Lucifer, 
And of course, Christ and the devil have nothing in common. You're either in Christ or outside of Christ. You're either saved or unsaved. You can't sit in a fence. You're either a part or the body of Christ or you're not. Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? If you speak to a Muslim, they will say that if you're not one of them, you are a kuffa. Kuffa kaffa, they pronounce it differently. And a kuffa, a kaffa is a non-Muslim. And they will say this, that because you are not a Muslim, you are an infidel. But in the scripture, when the scripture speaks about an infidel, the scripture is speaking about such as a person who isn't saved. In fact, 1 Timothy chapter 5 says that if you don't provide for your family, you are worse than an infidel. 16. And what agreements hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God. As God hath said, I will dwell in them and walk in them. And I'll be their God and they shall be my people. You are right now the temple of the living God. Your body is a temple of the living God. Proverbs 23, 7 again. As a man thinks in his heart, so he is. What you think is what you are. Or what they say, you are what you eat. Your body is a temple of the Holy Ghost. And I've spent the last year or two researching Oliver Cromwell. And like I said, over the last couple of Sundays, I've been able to finish it. And to my surprise, to my surprise, Oliver Cromwell, this very large and life Puritan, was considered by the Quakers to be unsaved. I'm not sure I would agree with their assessments. I think George Fox, the leader of the Quakers, said to uh, Oliver Cromwell, he said, uh, you should be more uh, conscious of the crown of life than the crown of the state. And that was very well put. And he was saying quite simply this, that Cromwell was more interested, more preoccupied with the crown, the crown of the state, which isn't completely fair to say that Cromwell was offered the throne of England, if you will, and he could have been King Oliver I, but he turned it down. But what Fox was trying to do was get Cromwell to take his eyes off the state and put them onto the saviour. And I agree with that. I think Cromwell, towards the end of his life, was somewhat worldly. I think he was too caught up in the affairs of state. But to my surprise, I discovered that Cromwell liked to drink alcohol. Cromwell liked to smoke. And he's not the only one, of course. Spurgeon would also like to uh, smoke. And other greats have also liked to drink alcohol. And maybe if I get a chance, I will take a closer look at such activities. But your body is a temple of the Holy Ghost. You are the temple of the living God. The body of Christ doesn't need to meet in literal buildings, okay? Back in the first century, the Gentiles... Those that were saved would meet in people's homes like we are this morning. Church buildings, per se, didn't come along until much later. The Jews, on the other hand, had their synagogues. And their synagogues became churches. In fact, James says, a man comes into your assembly wearing uh, gay clothing, so on and so forth. You are to not fall over yourselves to treat him like a king because such people are more likely to sue you. Slight paraphrase. But the point I'm making is this, from James's epistle, the term for assembly, if you check your TR, the text of Receptus, is synagogue. Because the Jews, like I say, those that got saved would meet in synagogues. They had their own structure. But here we're going from Concord, verse 15. We're going from Yoking, verse 14, to an agreement. 16 again. And what agreements hath the temple of God with idols? So the temple of God here is used in the sense of, first of all, a person's vessel, a person's standing in the Lord, and also in reference to the body of Christ. Idols, quite simply, is idols. Like statues, like a rosary bead, like anything that you need to help you, quote-unquote, enjoy a closer relationship with the Lord. And he hates such activities he doesn't want you to be bowing down to a statue. He doesn't want you to be whipping yourself like the Opus Dei people do. He doesn't want you to be falling over yourself and crying and weeping to St. Christopher or St. Jude or what have you. Such is an abomination to the Lord. For ye are, present tense, the temple of the living God in a spiritual sense. And that's why First Corinthians 3, 6, and 11 speak about the need to confess your sins 
on a daily basis. And if you don't, you become sick, you become weak, you become uh, dry, because Almighty God is living inside of you. As God hath said, I will dwell in them. And this term, I will dwell in them, is unique to New Testament. And I spent the last week trying to find an Old Testament passage, just one Old Testament passage, which speaks about the Lord dwelling inside people. And I can't think of anywhere in the Old Testament where any man or woman could say or would enjoy or experience the Lord dwelling in such a person. The spirits of the Lord would fall on a person, would commission a person, would carry a person, would anoint a person. But I can't think of anywhere in the Old Testament where any priest, prophet or king or man or woman of any stature would enjoy Almighty God living inside such a person. But for the New Testament, for those of us which are saved, he lives inside of us, comma, and walk in them. And I'll be their God and they shall be my people. So it could just be that Paul has got Leviticus in mind. Go to Leviticus 26. Now, if you look at these verses very carefully, and I have done over the last week, like I say, there are probably half a dozen passages from the Old Testament that Paul has in mind when he makes these statements about dwelling in them and walking in them. And if he's got Leviticus in mind, Leviticus uh, 26, then perhaps, just perhaps, he's got verse 12 in mind. And I will walk among you and will be your God and you shall be my people. But it doesn't quite match. I will walk among you, not in you, and will be your God and you shall be my people. In the context, children of Israel. In the context, Jews that had voluntarily entered into a covenant with Jehovah. So I don't think Leviticus 26.12 is completely what Paul had in mind. Yes, it comes very near, but from 6.16, dwell in them and walk in them. I can't find it from Leviticus 26.12, and I'll read it one more time. And I will walk among you, children of Israel, and will be your God, and ye shall be my people. It is fascinating that the Apostle Paul would quote, like I say, many times from the Old Testament. And yet, if you go back to the Old Testament, the quotations don't always match up. And of course, they don't need to, because the writer of the New Testament wrote the Old Testament. And as such, he, the Holy Spirit, is at liberty to correct himself, change himself, or add to his own statements. Second Corinthians six seventeen, please. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you, and will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. Now we get back to separation and segregation. And if you think of segregation, you probably think maybe of the Civil War, or more likely the Civil Rights Movement from the 1960s, which swept America. And you probably think of someone like uh, Malcolm X, or... Uh, Martin Luther King, or guys such as that. You may think of the Kennedys. You may think of uh, LBJ. You may think of that well-known gathering in Washington when uh, Martin Luther King got up and he said, I've dreamed a dream. And he's got Muslims there. He's got Jews there. He's got so-called Christians there. He's got Catholic priests there. He's got uh, Episcopalians standing all around him. A very communists. He had a lot of very well-to-do people. In fact, one uh, one uh, statement concerning Luther King uh, made the case that there are fourteen filing cabinets sealed until twenty sixty-eight. Fourteen filing cabinets concerning documents about Martin Luther King sealed until twenty sixty-eight. And yet, I believe that in America they have a Martin Luther King Day. And I think it's January time, but I may be wrong. But that's not what scripture is speaking about. The scripture is not saying that the whites should separate from the blacks or the blacks from the whites. The scripture is saying this, that whatever your color is, if you're unsaved, you are unsaved. 
You're unholy, you're unclean, you're unregenerate. Simple as that. But once you get saved, whether you're black, white, or what have you, you are commanded. You are commanded to be separated from the world. And there are many commandments in the Pauline epistles. People think of commandments and they think of the Old Testament. But there are many commandments that are applied to those living today, those that are under grace. 6.17, wherefore come out from among them, wherefore come out from among them, and be separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. That also feeds into Revelation 18.4.5 and 6, before the Lord destroys Babylon, and we believe that to be in reference to ecclesiastical and economic Babylon, the Catholic Church. But it could be that Paul's got Isaiah 52 in mind here. Go to Isaiah 52. Isaiah 52. Isaiah 52. And look, if you will, please, at verse 11. Depart ye, depart ye, go ye out from thence, touch no unclean thing. Go ye out of the midst of her, be ye clean that bear the vessels of the Lord. Could be, 52.11 is what Paul is Citing here from uh, 6.17, but not necessarily. Depart ye, depart ye, go ye out from thence. Children of Israel, touch no unclean thing. Throw back to the Old Testament, a throw back to the priests that would offer sacrifices on behalf of the children. And for the priests, they were expected to not come into contact with death of any kind. And there were different rules and regulations for priests. Some could come into contact with death, but others could not. Go ye out of the midst of her, be clean, the better vessels of the Lord. So Isaiah partly has that in mind, going back to the first five books of the scripture. But Paul perhaps has got a greater view in mind here concerning one's fellowship with the Lord. You can become contaminated so very, very easily. 18 from Second Corinthians chapter 6, please. And will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. Before you are saved, like I say, Almighty God, number one, wasn't your God. Number two, wasn't your father. When people say that we are all children of God, they are lying. No one is a child of God until they are born again. But it could be that Paul's got Isaiah 43 in mind. Isaiah 43, go to Isaiah 43. This is a huge book, Isaiah. And if you've ever read it, you are probably blown away at times at the amount of material found in Isaiah. Isaiah 43, Isaiah 43. Look at verse 5, if you will. Fear not, for I am with thee. I will bring thy seed from the east and gather thee from the west. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, keep not back. Bring my sons from far and my daughters from the ends of the earth, even every one that is called by my name. For I have created him for my glory. I have formed him, yea, I have made him. So you think of 1948, you think of 1968, the seven-day war, six-day war, excuse me, you think of the Six-Day War, when the Jews got back to Jerusalem, and they said, never again. Or you think of 1948, when they made it to Israel, and they said, never again. And it took two world wars to prepare the way for the Jews to go back to Israel. Fear not, for I am with thee, Jehovah speaking. I will bring thy seed from the east, and he did, and gather thee from the west, and he certainly did. I will say to the north, give up, like Russia like most of Europe, like parts of Britain, America, Canada, Australasia, and to the south, keep not back. I mean, millions of Jews made it to Israel. 1946, 1947, 1948, bring my sons from far and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Now you've got more Jews living in Israel than ever before. Even everyone that is called by my name, Jew, Jews, Jehovah, for I have created him for my glory. Israel is referred to as the Lord's firstborn. I have formed him, yea, I have made him. So the whole purpose of man is to love the Lord. 
The whole purpose of mankind is to worship the Lord. The whole purpose of mankind is to rejoice in the Lord and to share the Lord with everyone and anyone. And that is why we, those of us which are saved, are still alive on the earth today to preach the gospel. 17 from 2 Corinthians 6, one more time. Wherefore come out from among them. There's a call to separate. Not always easy, I know. And be separate, saith the Lord. This is a commandment, one more time. And touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. And be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. You will be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. In the context, fellowship. In the context, relationship. In the context, intimacy. In the context, keeping yourself clean, sanctified, and not contaminated. But when you think of separation, you think of isolating yourself. And yes, that sometimes is what you will need to do. There was a pastor some years ago who married this woman, had children with her, and he discovered, much to his horror, that she wasn't saved. She wasn't reading her Bible. She wasn't praying. And he had some children with this woman, and he was very close to her family. And he thought to himself, what am I going to do? I'm a pastor of a church, and my wife is an unsaved woman. Never prays, never reads a scripture. She's deceived me. He stuck with this woman, an unsaved woman. And then other times you hear about saved people, deliberately marrying unsaved people, knowing that they weren't saved, and yet they go out and marry them nevertheless. Can you imagine the enormity of such a thing? You are trying to live for the Lord, and your wife is unsaved, or turn it around, the wife is saved and the husband isn't. Woman gets saved and she seeks out a man to marry and she comes into contact with with a group of men. She starts to speak to them, starts to fill them out. They could be members of her church and she thinks they are the real thing. They say they pray. They say they read the scriptures. They say they are living for the Lord. They love the Lord. And within five minutes, the guy doesn't read his Bible. He doesn't pray. He doesn't share the gospel. He's an unsaved lout. And now they are stuck with such a person. Also, this can feed into business dealings. I know a chap who runs a business, and he told me uh, a while ago that his business partner is an unsaved chap. And I thought to myself, why would you work with an unsaved chap? I mean, if you're self-employed, if you have your own business, you can pretty much pick and choose who you want to work with, who you want to be in business with. And this guy says he's saved, and yet he is associating with an unsaved partner. And of course, you know what will happen. The union will become unholy. Compromise will creep in and all sorts of problems will occur. I'm not saying that if you're in business with a saved person, it will be any better. There's enough of the old nature in all of us to really ruin what we do. Whatever man touches, he contaminates. But if you can, if you can, you should always start with the desire, the goal to be in fellowship with saved people and to marry saved people. So 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, very clearly in reference to never yoking up with unsaved people, never affiliating yourself with an apostate church either. And if you are a Bible-believing Christian, you cannot marry a Roman Catholic. You cannot marry a member of a false church, of a false denomination, because you are going to be yoking yourself to an unsaved person. And fast forward to children and being born and if you know about the catholic church they are very insistent on children that are born to at least one catholic spouse being raised in a catholic church and if you are a saved woman and your husband is a catholic or if you are a saved man and your wife is a catholic there's every chance that it was agreed between the pair of you before you got married that if you ever had children they would be raised in catholic schools And that will cause you a lot of pain, a lot of grief. Your children will be introduced to Mary worship, statue worship, the blasphemous mass, and all sorts of other heresies which will just rip you to shreds. Be very careful how you approach relations, whether professional or personal. 15, concord, concordate, believer, infidel, 16, agreement, contract, Of course, we have nothing in common with the devil, verse 15, if we're saved. We have nothing in common with darkness, unrighteousness, verse 14, if we're saved. We have nothing in common with idols, verse 16, if we are saved. 17, 18, get out. 
17, one more time. Wherefore, come out from among them, physically, spiritually, get out of a false church system, get out of the ecumenical movement, get out of an unsavory business, and be separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. Almost feeding back to Isaiah 55. Let the wicked forsake his way, so on and so forth. And will be a father unto you, intimacy. God the Father, Abba Father. And ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. So 18 verses from Second Corinthians chapter 6. And I can say this, that the next two to three chapters are going to be pretty difficult for me to uh, teach. This is... A difficult epistle, so keep me in prayer as I battle my way through the next two to three chapters. But as always, it's a great blessing for me to be able to do this for ETC Radio. And uh, once this is recorded, it is edited. And then by the grace of God, it goes on the shortwave radio, which is another arm of our ministry. And we are blessed to hear from people in Russia, Japan, Italy, just three countries during the last seven days. Not to mention people in uh, Britain and other parts of Europe. So I think you've heard enough for today and I'll close it there. And Lord willing, next week, pick it up from Second Corinthians chapter 7.